Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank podcast. We love God, love people, and love our city. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org. Good morning, saints, uh, and thank you for tuning in once again to Church Online. And uh, we're, we're busy uh, this, um, uh, this week with our Gospel in Full Color series, and this is week three. Uh, of a, a very important uh, conversation that we really ought to have as Christians uh, as how the, the gospel uh, informs our lives, informs our communities, informs our relationships and our perspectives. I'm hoping that this is a, a, a conversation, that this is a series that is going to challenge you uh, in, in all manner um, of, um, of, of thinking. And um, I just want to highlight uh, because we've been touching on a number of different things, that this is not necessarily, well, in fact, let me not even say necessarily, this is not a series for racists. It's not a f- series for tribalists, or culturalists. It's not a series for some kind of a philosophical idealist or whatever other ists. This is a series for people who would seek to live out the gospel in full color. And so, I want to talk um, a little bit about a very interesting conversation that we find happening in the Bible, specifically in the book of John chapter 4. And this is a a story that we've read, talked about, heard, been taught about many times, uh, I I presume. And that's the story of Jesus uh, talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, uh, lots that we've been taught about this, and uh, I was just uh, studying this scripture again, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was, was speaking to me anew, speaking to me afresh about some of the gems that he's put in his word, what can, what can be derived um, out of this, and, 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 and how we can apply it in our own lives um, today. So, so today I want to talk about crossing cultural lines uh, and what it's going to take for us, what it looks like for us to cross uh, cultural lines and obviously, we're going to be looking at the model um, and example of Jesus as he's relating um, to, to this woman. So I, I don't have many points for us today. I don't, I don't have a three points, four points, because what I really want to do is, is for us to talk. I want, to ha- I want us to have a, um, a frank discussion about what is the Jesus standard and what is the standard that we have adhered to. So that if there's, a, if there's a gap, if we're not adhering to the standard of Jesus, that we appeal to his grace, that we're able to live according to that, to that standard. And that's the only way that we can experience the gospel in its fullness and the gospel in full color. So in the book of John chapter 4, uh, we read that Jesus uh, has been ministering in Judea. And, and, uh, and of course, where Jesus is, there's drama. And, 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 uh, and he picks up some of this drama and he picks up that the tide is turning against him. So he's making plans to move from Judea and travel down uh, to Galilee. And if you look at a, a, a map or if you just Google the, 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 the map of, of, um, in Jesus' time, you'll, you'll recognize that uh, there, there is a, 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 a country uh, between Judea and Galilee, and that's, and that's the Samaria, the, the land of the Samaritans. However, uh, what we need to appreciate about the story is that any self-respecting Jew, when they were traveling between Galilee and Judea, would ensure that they don't go through the land of the Samaritans. 
So they preferred to take the longer route around uh, because they didn't want to relate to the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought of them as less than. Uh, they didn't want to mix with them, talk with them, be seen with them. Uh, it was scandalous and not only that, uh, it was defiling uh, for them to, to have that kind of engagement with the Samaritan. In fact, even stepping on Samaritan soil, they considered themselves to be defiled by doing so. So they did all they could to uh, avoid uh, interacting with the Samaritans or moving through Samaritan country. But Jesus, in moving from Judea to Galilee, hits, takes the straight route, which is the direct, more logical route, uh, but it's also the route that is just not taken. And we find him at this, at, at this well. And, uh, and, and what had happened was they travel to this place and they're near to a town called Sakaar. And when they get to this place, Jesus is tired. They've been traveling for a long time. And he sends his disciples off to get some food. Find some food in a nearby town and I'm going to rest. And um, that's what he tells them. Of course, we know through the benefit of hindsight and being able to read the scriptures that what he was doing was he was setting up a divine appointment. That he had a divine appointment with this woman, the Samaritan woman. And he didn't want the apostles or the disciples to interfere uh, with that uh, appointment because they simply weren't ready for what God was about to do, for the kind of reconciliation, the kind of healing, the, the extent of the gospel. They knew they had an idea of what the gospel was and they were learning about who Jesus was uh, and, and what he came to do in this, in this earth. And they had their own ideas, right, about how the culmination and the manifestation of this gospel uh, or the Messiah would be. And for them, it was all about national liberation. And G so Jesus would at some point hand the nation of Israel back into, the, into Israelite hands and out of the hands of the oppressors. And that was their idea. And so they were observing Jesus carefully to see he was performing the miracles. He was doing the right things and saying the right things, but he hadn't yet shown them how he was going to liberate them uh, from, uh, uh, from, from their oppression. But what Jesus was going to do in this moment was way bigger than their own expectations. And they weren't ready for this moment because Jesus was pointing to what it looks like for the gospel to live out, to be lived out in its fullness, the gospel in full color. Here we go. Let's see what happens. So, so Jesus is waiting at this well and, and a woman approaches. Nothing out of the ordinary about this is the woman she's going to a well. The, the Bible points out uh, that the hour uh, that she is going to the, to, or that she, she's choosing to go to the well is a, a peculiar hour. Uh, many people didn't choose to go to the well at that time because it was particularly hot. And so they waited either very early or, or later in the cool of the day that they would go and collect water, which is still the practice in many villages um, uh, around the world today. I grew up in a, in a, in a rural area. And uh, when we uh, went or, or, the, or the woman went to the well they, 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 or the, the river, wherever they went to collect water, they chose a specific time that was cooler um, so that it wouldn't be too hard for them to bear. Here's this woman during hot, hot time of the day. Here she's coming out midday and she's going uh, to the well and she meets Jesus. She's traveling alone. There's no, nobody else around. And they have this interaction that would blow minds, blow prejudices out of the water, blow presuppositions and assumptions, blow cultural standpoints and, and histories out of the water in one single conversation and would usher in the kingdom into this town 
um, of, of Sakaar, the, 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 the culmination of this conversation is that the town is saved. They, they, there's, there's, there's revival. They ask Jesus to stay on and teach them some more, and even more people are saved um, through, uh, through this interaction. But um, in, um, in verse 9 of, of, chapter, of, of chapter 4, uh, th- there's something I want us to look at here, and that is that this woman is introduced to us as the Samaritan woman. And that's really all we know about. A little bit more is revealed about her later on, but right now she's introduced to us as the Samaritan woman who's heading towards, uh, towards the watering well. Now, this is important. The fact that she's Samaritan and the fact that she's a woman are vital um, towards what Jesus is doing here and towards the message that we are unpacking together this, uh, this morning. To, to understand the significance of, of the fact that Jesus was talking or about to talk with this person who is a Samaritan, we need to take a few steps back and understand the context of why the Samaritans hated the Jews and why the Jews hated the Samaritans. What was that all about? Well, we, arguably, we could go generations back uh, to, understand, to understand this conflict. In fact, we could go all the way back to the time of, of, uh, of Jacob. Jacob had, uh, had many sons, and, uh, and one of his sons, his name was Joseph. And Joseph uh, was at odds with his brothers, and, and, uh, and they ended up selling him off to slavery uh, because they didn't get along with him, and they didn't like uh, the fact that he was favored by, by, um, by his father. The story of Joseph, I'm sure you've, you you've might have come across it. Uh, he he, he uh, develops and, in fact, ends up being used by God, uh, even though he was sold into slavery, ends up being used by God for the salvation of his family. Uh, and um, it turns out later on that, that Jacob would give a portion of land to Joseph as an inheritance. In fact, it was a double, it was a double inheritance because it was the two sons of Joseph who received this portion of land on behalf of their, of their father because the two sons of, of Joseph were in fact adopted by, uh, by Jacob to, beca- to form the, uh, two of the tribes of, um, of Israel, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the, the, the parcel of land that we're talking about, the land of Samaria, is the land that was inherited by Jacob. And so the people of Samaria, of Samaria, they drew their lineage and their identity all the way back to Jacob. That's how, that was their, their, um, their identity. This is the land of our, of, our, of our father Jacob. We inherited this land. It was given to our descendants. And this is the land that we've, um, that we've occupied. But we fast forward many, many generations to the time of the kings to where things start to hot up a little bit. So uh, the nation of Israel, they've inherited the, the, this, um, the, the promised land. The land has been apportioned accordingly. The tribes have inherited, etc. And we enter the time of the kings. And King David is a righteous king who rules over the whole house of Israel, what the Bible calls the whole house of Israel. And whenever the Bible refers to the whole house of Israel, it's simply referring to the 12 tribes. Uh, because as we know, they came to be divided. But at this point, they, were, they formed one kingdom and one empire. They were the whole house um, of, of Israel. After his death, his son, King Solomon, reigns over the whole house of Israel, a united kingdom of Israel. 
However, after the death of Solomon, uh, Solomon's son sits on the throne, but very soon afterwards, there's civil war, and there's a break between the tribes. And uh, now we no longer have the whole house of Israel as one. We have two, uh, two kingdoms. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom m- making up the, the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom making up two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the rest forming uh, the northern tribe. Uh, and out of the northern tribe, one of the tribes would grow to become so significant that the northern tribe would, would, would be called by their name, and that was Ephraim. So they came to be known, known as Ephraim. That was the northern, um, northern tribes. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the southern tribes was, was uh, Judah and Benjamin, and they, and they formed the area of, um, of Judea. Here's what's important about this. The place, the appointed place of worship for Israel was in Jerusalem. So their place of pilgrimage, uh, during certain appointed feasts, they, they would travel to the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where they would offer their sacrifices to God. This proved problematic now because there were two separate kingdoms, and they were at war with one another. They started to hate one another, and, they, and so they were fighting. And so this, these guys are not welcome in this, in this land, and these guys are not welcome in this land. How then do we still observe our... Uh, uh, principles and, and, um, and processes of worship. The solution for the northern tribes was to erect their own temples within their vicinity and use those as their places of worship. And it was, it's, it was logical, right? We can't go there so let's, and we need to worship, so let's make a plan and let's erect our own places of worship. I want to stop here for a moment and, um, and address something. Uh, God has ordained for us how we ought to worship. Worship is not our idea. How we worship is not flimsy based on how we're feeling. It's a God-ordained process. And he's ordained that worship largely happens within the assembly. It's not an isolated practice. Now we can have relationship with God. We can pursue him. We can have sweet intimacy within that place of isolation and away from people. But certainly there's a great expression of our faith within the assembly. And that's the appointed worship. And it has been the case since the days that, since the day that um, Moses received the blueprint of the tabernacle up on the mountain. And so the sacrificial system, all of it, is within the context of community, within the context of the assembly. And none, nothing has changed. We, we find ourselves currently in, in unprecedented situations where we're having to self-isolate, we're having to social distance, we're having to exercise wisdom. So we haven't been able to meet together as a community to worship together. That's not because God is bringing in a new style of worship. That's because we're having to respond to a global pandemic and exercise wisdom. But it will not always be this way, saints. There will come a day when the fear that has been caused by uh, this COVID-19 pandemic will be a thing of the past. And we'll come back into our worship services again. Already, we're moving into a, uh, to, towards that direction where we're going to start meeting together very soon. And it's all with all the restrictions, right? So it's limited numbers and people, etc. But we, we're at least moving in that direction. And, and one day we're trusting that all of those restrictions are going to be thrown off as, um, as, as we, we, we figure out how to deal with this virus. And we're going to be able to come back into uh, um, our, our worship assemblies again. What I want to caution and highlight here is that many of, many of us have gotten 
into a rhythm and it's a rhythm of convenience. I can worship in my own home. I can do online shopping. I can work from home. I can have meetings at home. I can say everything is within my reach. It's within a convenience space. But convenience is not necessarily always of God. It's not necessarily always pointing to the ordained form of worship. Much like with the northern tribes of Israel, who erected their own places of worship within their context because they had to. There might have been other options. They could have sought peace with, uh, with the southern kingdoms. They could have uh, bartered, uh, traded and bartered or trade routes or certain times that they could go to the, um, to the temples, etc. But they chose to formulate their own um, places of worship, uh, what, what they thought worship was, the way they thought it should be done. This was not God's plan. Uh, and we see it fall apart and, and, and um, formulate into something that is not like unto the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, uh, when we uh, go back into those spaces where we can now meet together again, obviously we exercise wisdom, but where possible, let's prioritize the, um, the, the assembly. That is the God-ordained method of how we're to worship, not necessarily going after convenience. Right, so these kingdoms... They're divided, their worship places are divided, they don't like each other. Around 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdoms, that's the, that's the, the, the larger kingdoms, they are attacked and, and overrun by the Assyrians. And, and a significant portion of the people are carried um, into exile, uh, into, into Babylon. And, and the Babylonians and the, and the attacking kingdoms, what they do is they deploy colonists, colonizers, to go and live in the land. Uh, and these are, are people from different places and different tribes. And they go and they live in this land, and they start to mingle with the remnant of the people who are left. Uh, and, and those would have been farmers and the like who, who were left tending the land. And um, they bring their own customs. They bring their own forms of religion and idol worship. And they intermarry with the people that are left behind um, and, and dilute uh, the, the, the true worship um, of the one true God. And they mix it with the worship of idols, etc. And this caused to further widen the rift between the northern and the southern kingdoms because now these guys, the southerners, were seeing these people as uh, sellouts and, and half-breeds. You, you've, you've intermingled and you've defiled um, true religion. Fast forward to 600 BC, the southern kingdom is also overrun and overtaken. And those, the, the people of, of Judea are carried away into Babylonian exile. However, less than 100 years um, uh, after that, a remnant of them is, is released and allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to the temple, to start to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And you can read um, about the return of the exiles in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They return, and when they return, they find that their brothers are, who remained are still there. They're happy to receive them, but, but now there's, there's this massive separation because the, the returning Jews refused to accept uh, the, the, the Jews who'd remained, and they called them half-breeds. They've defiled, they're sellouts, they settled, uh, they were compromised, uh, and, and all of that. So they refused to intermingle with them and they still set, set themselves aside in Judea and they've rebuilt the J Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temples and they refused to accept help from, uh, from, from these guys. And so, uh, the, again, 
as if the rift wasn't wider that served to widen the rift. And so in response, the, 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 the half-breed Hebrews uh, aligned themselves with the enemies of Israel to try and sabotage the building of the temple and the building of, um, of Jerusalem. Again, now the rifts have become religious, uh, religious differences. They've become political in terms of their associations, and they've become personal. These guys who are coming back from Babylon are saying, we were carried away into slavery, and yet we maintained the integrity of our faith. You, got le- you were left behind, and yet you compromised. So, so the rift was al- along political lines. Uh, it was along religious lines. It was along social lines. And, uh, and it would continue to be reinforced and solidified over many generations, many generations. There would be children who were born, um, who uh, were not part of that conflict, but they learned to hate the other uh, because that was the culture that they were born into. Uh, they, they adopted what was already there. Uh, maybe that sounds, uh, it rings a little bit closer to home. You know, I was um, just reflecting on uh, a, a statement, a quote by Nelson Mandela um, in A Long Walk to Freedom. He talks about the fact that uh, no one is, uh, is born hating another because of how they look, uh, where they come from, the differences in, in, in race and culture, etc. Uh, we learn to hate. Uh, and he goes on to say that if, if, we can, if, if people can be taught to hate, then they can also be taught to love uh, because love comes more naturally to the human heart. And, and, and we see this at play, right? Uh, this rift was caused and it continued to widen and to settle until it became cultural. It was a cultural expression to hate the Samaritans. It was a cultural expression for the Samaritans to hate the Jews. Uh, some of them may, could not even tell you why, but we hate those guys. They are different from us. Don't interact with them. To such an extent that it, the hatred was institutionalized. If you came into contact with the, with the Samaritan or went into Samaritan land, you got defiled and you had to go through a purification process. That's how deep and etched in to culture and religion and institution it became. It was no longer a question of why or why not. It was now part of religious law that this is the case. And uh, I think many of us can identify. We live in a country that has, has been so polarized and, and there are so many camps, so many whether across tribal lines, language lines, uh, 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 ethnic lines, culture, whatever, whatever that thing is, there are always these divisions. It's us and it's them. And we're taught to protect us and hate them and to hold them at length, at arm's length. Uh, and, uh, and that has not done us as, as a service um, as a people. In fact, um, for as long as we have not allowed the gospel to minister into those areas, uh, it has not done us a service in terms of our witness as Christians. We have not experienced the fullness of the gospel until we have allowed the gospel uh, in full color to invade even those areas so that we are willing to cross culture lines, uh, 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 race, racial lines, tribal lines, whatever that line is, economic lines, to be able to form relationships and allow the gospel to minister into people. Now, the second thing I want to highlight about this, um, uh, this, this lady is that she's a woman. So she's a Samaritan woman. Um, and we learn uh, a little bit later on in, uh, in verse 18 that, um, in fact, this woman has had five husbands and the person that she's now with is not her husband. Jesus uh, uh, discerns this and he says so. She doesn't deny it. 
And, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I've always read, um, or I'm realizing, sorry, that I've, I've, I've always read the Bible with a particular lens. And so um, I, I have read this and assumed or been taught or received it from somewhere that this woman was a woman of loose morals. Why? Well, she, she had five husbands. She, had, she has to be a woman of loose morals. She had five husbands, and the person she's now with is not even her husband. Scandalous. And so that's been her branding. It's this, this, this woman of, of loose morals who is going to the well at a particular time because um, then at least she could be alone because nobody else wanted to associate with, with her. And that's everything that we've read into, into the scriptures, right? The scriptures don't necessarily tell us that. But because we've, we've, we've got a, a particular lens, that's what we've read uh, into, into the scriptures. I'm so grateful, saints, for the upswell of voices and activists who have begun to speak up against the oppression, the systematic oppression of women in our society globally. But specifically, I'm talking about the voices that have arisen within our nation because it is time that we deal with some of the stuff um, where women are considered to be lesser than uh, uh, and, and, and lesser uh, citizens, where women um, uh, are cons consistently fighting against inequality in the workplace, where they fear for their lives in the streets, and sometimes even in their own homes. I'm bringing this up um, not because I want to be controversial. Um, I, I, I'm bringing this up because it is controversial. It, it's controversial that this woman has, to my eyes, for as long as I've been a Christian and for as long as I've read the scripture, has been loose, loose morals. Um, we could use other words to, um, to, to describe her. The reason for it is what's controversial. The reason for it is because my lens has been the lens of my culture and the system that has told me that she has to be loose. She had five husbands. But I haven't looked at it from the lens of contemporary culture of the day and the context that she found herself in. And, and let me talk to that for a moment. This woman had had five husbands. She lived in a society where she had zero power to choose a husband and even less power to end, or, or to, to end a marriage. But the men in her society had all the power to choose a wife and to end a marriage for whatever reason they deemed necessary. She can't have children. Uh, let's put her away. Uh, I don't like the way she cooks. Uh, let's put her away. You know, I liked her before. I don't like the way she looks now. Uh, let's put her away. You know, I think I might like another. I'd really like to have uh, 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 legal intercourse with somebody else. So let's put this one away. Literally any reason that they could ju justify, they could for me, uh, uh, write, give her a, a, a certificate of divorce and send her away. So why then would we decide that this woman, because she's had five husbands, was the one who had, who had the power? We, we, we look at her and we've understood her to be this femme fatale who chews men up and spits them out. That she, she's burned through husband at, the, at a rate of, of, of knots. This woman, saints, was a victim. A victim of the society that she grew up in. A society that did not value women. So they didn't educate women so that they could have a gainful employment 
and, and, and uh, contribute to the economy. Women were raised for the purpose of being a wife and bearing children. That was their job. And that's how they were raised, to depend on a man. And so when we find somebody who has had a husband or two, the question to ask is not, whoa, this, you know, is she a loose woman? What has she done? The question to ask is, what kind of situation did she find herself in? It's easy for us to decipher what kind of situation she found herself in. She found herself in the situation where she needed to have a husband because the society that she grew up in told her that she was nothing outside of having a husband. In fact, they made it so that if she didn't have a husband, she couldn't eat. She couldn't work, she couldn't eat. Go and read the book of Ruth to expand on, um, on, the, on the plight that women found themselves, found themselves in without a husband. And so you have somebody who obviously had a first husband. I'm going to assume, and I'm stretching here, please, I'm, 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 you know, uh, I'm, maybe I'm reaching. I'm going to assume that the first husband died. And the only reason I'm going to assume that is because I'm assuming that if the, if the first husband divorced her because she couldn't have children, for example, that there was no other man who was going to touch her. So let's assume that the first husband died. What would she have had to do? She would have had to re- accept the very next proposal that comes along because she needed to survive. What happens if that marriage fails? She has to accept the very next proposal that comes along because she needs to survive. What happens when that marriage fails? She has to accept the very next proposal that comes along because she has to survive. She had to do what she could do in order to survive. And yet we've labeled her as loose, maybe even a whore as a result. Tell me something. What kind of pain does somebody have to be experiencing to choose? Right now where Jesus finds her, she's not married. The guy that she's, she's with, Jesus says, is not your husband. What kind of pain would she have had to go through to choose now rather to suffer the indignity and the shame of being unmarried than to go through that cycle again of being used and, and, then, and then discarded at a man's whim? This is the woman that I now see through the lens of those who have begun to educate me about the plight of women and the system that we have cultivated over, I don't know how many thousands of years. And and I'm repenting and I'm seeing this woman for who she is and I'm seeing her um, for what she's had to go through. Last thing I want to point out to you is when the disciples come back in verse 27, Jesus has been interacting with this woman when they come back and they see that that, that Jesus is talking to somebody. Remember now, these, these are Jewish boys uh, who are raised according to the Jewish way. They've, they carry an institutionalized hate. They are racist by nature. They hate these people. They, they despite, they're probably resenting the fact that Jesus has led them into this land in the first place. They've had to go and interact with these people and get food from them. They come back. Remember the whole history that we've just talked about of where this conflict comes from. They come back and they see Jesus And the Bible tells us that what they observed was not that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan. They observed and were freaked out by the fact that he was talking to a woman. They were able to bypass generations and centuries and centuries of tribal or cultural hate, but they could not overlook the fact that he was talking to a woman. That was the scandal to their eyes. And that is what she had to face in that day, and that is what women have to face even today. 
That is what women tell me when I talk to them. That's what I read about um, uh, when, when, I, when I follow people's stories on social media about, about the, 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 the consistent fight that people have to overcome because they're women in the workplace, in social circles, in the streets, in their home, that there's a consistent disadvantage. The gospel can speak even into these areas. The gospel is potent and relevant enough to speak into, even into, this, in, 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 into these areas. The central pivot, the central person of the gospel, Jesus himself, is found here addressing this very issue. This woman is surprised. How are you, being a Jew, going to talk to me and ask me for something? Not only that, how are you being a Jew and a rabbi and a man going to spend time talking to me, a woman? Saints, the full color of the gospel addresses these issues. If people are not being addressed, if, if we are not being challenged to step across color lines, if we are not being uh, challenged to, to remove gender biases, if we are not being challenged to go into those uncomfortable spaces, then the gospel has not done its full work in our lives. For the disciples of Jesus up until this point, the gospel hadn't done its, the fullness of its work in their lives. It would only be later on that they would realize through the empowering of the Holy Spirit that the gospel and the kingdom wasn't just for them and that they ought to remove their prejudices and all that they'd been taught and institutionalized into for, their, for generations and to embrace people who think different, look different, come from different places, even believe different things and to embrace them as people that God wants to call his own. What is it going to take for us to be willing to do that work? We are so blessed to belong to a community, a church that is diverse. It's a diverse community. We, we, we have people from all walks of life. We have people from different cultures, different nations. We have people who look different, different colors, all that. And it's beautiful and it glorifies God. But I want to challenge you that if the only expression of that is for you when we come together and we worship and we have a Sunday service and off you go and you brag about the fact that we have a diverse church, the gospel hasn't done its full work in your life. Until you cross over into Samaria, until you step into the person's house that you beheld as an enemy and you were told as an enemy until you can receive that person in your house, until you can sit with that person, until you can minister to that person, until you can love that person, the gospel hasn't done its fullness of work in your life. So I want to encourage you, saints. Be intentional. The fullness of the gospel is experienced when we go. When we go and we make disciples, when we go and we love people, when we go and we interact with people that others would prefer not to interact with, when we choose to relinquish the, the constraints of culture and to embrace the heart of God, the gospel is having a work in our lives. Are there people in your spheres who look different to you? think different to you 
do, do you pursue relationship with people of different cultures and colors? And what about people who believe different? What about people who are not Christians? Do we, do we pursue? Do, do we step into their lives? Do, do we dare to leave Judea and step onto Samaritan soil and risk being defiled for the sake of the kingdom of God? Father, help us. Give us your grace. Open our hearts and show us how we can best represent you. Where we need to forgive, bring forgiveness, Lord. I just speak release of the bitterness and even the hurt and pain that has been caused. Maybe uh, you, you, you're a black person and you feel like white people have really hurt you or the other way around. I just speak release over that pain right now and that it would dissipate and that it would be a, 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 a God-inspired love that wells up, that causes you to leave Judea and to step into Samaria. In Jesus' name. Saints, there are people who are watching us who will only ever see the gospel in action through our relationships. Let them see us paying the cost of stepping into one another's lives. It's costly to be in relationship with people who are diverse, who think different, look different, come from different spaces. It's costly. We have to compromise with certain things. There's sacrifices. But let them see us paying that cost and paying it gladly. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we have the privilege of slowing down a little bit and having a moment of breaking bread, taking communion together. I want to highlight the, the fact that this, this communion, what it represents is it represents something beautiful, but it also represents something messy. And, 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 and this, this, uh, this grape juice that I have in my hand is symbolic of the blood of Jesus. That, that, that's not, that, that's messy, saints. That's, um, that, that building something beautiful required a mess, required pain, required sacrifice. And even within the context of what we're talking about today, building that, that, that diversity of community that is genuine in connecting and learning about one another and putting away prejudices and offenses of the past, that's messy. That's a messy process that involves tears and many hours of talking and forgiveness and repenting and, and, and all, all, all of these wonderful things that are, that are kingdom things. And so I, I want us to take communion together, remembering that the death of Jesus was a messy business, but it was beautiful because the vision was you and I reunited to the Father you and I taking on Christ-likeness. I want to invite you that as you partake of this bread and of this juice, that you would make a commitment in your heart that you are for a kingdom that is filled with people who don't necessarily look like you, talk like you, think like you. People that you may have even been taught to hate. You're committed to that kingdom. Because that's the Jesus' kingdom. That's what Jesus was committed to. That's what he was doing 
with his body and with his, with his blood. That's why it was sacrificed. That's why it was poured out for us. We're going to take this together, but I also want to encourage you. Once you reach out, it doesn't matter if it's on Zoom, video chat, in a restaurant, in your own home, if you feel comfortable. Once you reach out to somebody and invite them to come and break bread with you, or you go into their space and break bread with them, have some bread, have some juice, have some wine, whatever is appropriate in the moment. And once you remember the sacrifice of Jesus for both of you, hopefully it can be somebody who is different from you. Maybe it could even be somebody who believes differently. Let's take this thankful, Lord, for the sacrifice of your body, for the cleansing of your blood. As you cleanse us, may we reflect more and more of your heart and more and more of your kingdom. Would you call us to leave our comfort spaces and step into, into the world of people who are different from us, to a world of people who, who are not going to come into our world, who wouldn't have heard the gospel from any other context except that we go to them. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Nation fam, wasn't that an amazing message? Thank you, Pastor Lerico, for just being obedient and helping us to be challenged in this area and our walk in our Christianity. What an important part to be aware of in our lives and to walk out with God's grace. I want to encourage you with one final scripture as we are closing. It's John 15 and in verse 5, you know the scripture well. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And let me encourage you this week that in, in hearing this message, you've got to go and apply it. Remain in Jesus. Remain in the word. Make, make it part of you. So that when you go out into the areas that you have influence in, and you can be a uh, uh, that you can be a light and an advocate for the gospel and a disciple maker. So let's go out there. Let's apply this word and have a great week this week.